This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am your host, Stephen Hausman, and today I'm speaking with Sarah Deutsch. Dr. Deutsch is a professor of history at Duke University and is the author of Making a Modern U.S. West, the Contested Terrain of a Region and Its Borders, 1898 to 1940, which came out earlier this year in 2022 from the University of Nebraska Press as part of their History of the American West series. Welcome to the New Books Network, Sally. Good to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm pleased to be here. Let's start just by hearing a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your background and uh, uh, how you became interested in history. So I grew up in suburban Chicago. I was born in Connecticut, but the family moved to Chicago when I was very young. And uh, I had a fabulous public school education And so early on, even in seventh grade, we were working with primary sources, which kind of got me hooked. It became this treasure trove and also already contested uh, interpretations. But it was also the late 60s, early 70s in suburban Chicago. And so it was a time when inescapably I was aware of issues around race, issues around gender, issues around class. Um, There were demonstrations, there were moratoria, there were um, horrible things that happened in the courts. And so that was also part of my heritage there. And I think I'm not unusual. I think most people make sense of their world by telling stories. And so that aspect of it became very important to me. And I think that along with the loving the primary source issue is part of what drove me there. And then also how powerful stories can be that became really evident in this period. And then the way that my teachers taught me history. And so I, it was very appealing, the idea of being able to, con- to participate in that creation of meaning. I find that that often, you know, in my own teaching, that when you can explain to students that that history is, you know, it's it's of course names and dates and things, but it's names and dates in the service of a story. That that it sort of reflects what you're saying. That that tends to get them more interested, right? That that if you can get people to understand that history is about the stories that we tell, that that's that opens up sort of a doorway for people to to become more interested in the field. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. So what got you interested in this history in particular? What brought you to the history of the American West and specifically the American West at the turn of the 20th century? So I'd long been interested in notions about cultural contact and what happens to you when you find yourself in the middle of a completely different world than you had expected and how that determines who you think you are and who the other people think they are since it's a two-way, minimally two-way interchange. And so a place where I could do that was important to me. And the people, I was an undergraduate at Yale, and I had a History of the American West class at Yale taught by Howard Lamar that was really interesting. I did a senior thesis that was about exploration. And then I went to England, and I studied end of empire in England. And when I came back to the U.S., I was still asking those same questions, but with a few additions. So um, what about gender? What about women? 
totally absent from my undergraduate education, virtually totally absent from my education at Oxford. And so the West seemed like a place where all those things came together in a powerful way, but also I wanted to work with Howard Lamar, who was an advisor whose eyes lit up every time you said something, who was an incredibly generous mentor. And I knew that there was going to be nothing that was off limits that I could explore with this advisor. And I'm always curious when it comes to books like this, these sort of massive synthetic works that cover a lot of ground and a lot of space and encompass all sorts of of, of recent and more distant scholarship, books like this. What is the process even like? How and, and where do you even begin to write a book like this? It's a total nightmare. I, um, I, had, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I had started thinking this was one kind of book that would be really fast and that I could base on a synthetic essay I'd written that was published in a collection called Under an Open Sky. And then I realized that the editors wanted something very different. And everything was open to my inquiry. And so I started by asking all these questions that at that point hadn't been asked, like what was the impact of the Spanish-American War and attitudes toward Mexicans in the U.S. And, you know, just a whole variety of questions. And, And it just got so unwieldy. And I was having real trouble making any kind of progress toward wrapping my arms around the whole thing. I would do bits and pieces. The bully piece was early. And so I finally decided, okay, if I were teaching a class on this, what would I want my students to know? And I ended up organizing the book as though it were a syllabus and organizing the chapters as though they were lectures in a syllabus. And that was what finally allowed me to do it because I could make selections like that. Those of us who teach are very used to making selections for what we can say in the classroom, even if we still cram too much in. And... It also allowed it to have a beginning, middle, and end, and to have a narrative arc, and to make sure the themes had a um, sort of ran through the whole book. So that was how I finally cracked it. That's really interesting. That's a good way of thinking about it. And it's one of those ways that teaching and the sort of research and writing uh, uh, portions of the job of being a professor are really, really intimately intertwined, that you can't really separate the two. And, and in the best way, you can't separate the two because the students Absolutely. and those conversations are so generative. So they lead you to different questions than you would have asked otherwise. Let's get into the book a little bit. And let's start by just setting the scene and the context here. Can you provide, uh, this, is, this is not an easy question to answer, but can you provide a, sort of a, a brief overview of what the West is like at the very end of the 19th century when this book begins? Maybe some things like, where are we talking about exactly? Who are the people that make up this place? What kind of work do they do and what kind of politics do they practice? That is a huge question. Um, so I would say that the West that I talk about is the western part of the United States, west of the Mississippi River, and only the continental, contiguous continental U.S. There's not much that shows up here that isn't that, but it's also its borders. And one of the key features of the book is to get past what we see as hard lines that circumnavig- or circumvent our ability to look across national lines to see how our history happens and what what crosses borders in terms of ideas and people. And so the scope of the book is that region and its borders and everything that crosses there. Now, in the late 19th century, there were still territories in the West, Oklahoma, Arizona, New Mexico, all still territories. The West was still a very contested terrain. Um, Indian Wars had ended with a massacre in 1890, but there were still enormous numbers of Native Americans. There were still contests over Native American land. There was still a struggle for who was supposed to get these resources. And And you had a lot of people with very different visions of what the future of this landscape was supposed to be. So not just Native Americans, but different sorts of people from the US. So you had working class people from various backgrounds. You had corporate investors, you had um, wealthy ranchers, you had a whole variety of people who were still battling out, whether it's in you know range wars or whether it's in uh, labor wars and you know dynamiting or whether it's in who gets to constitute the future of the country. So 
one of the things I talk about in the book is these colliding diasporas. So you have people set in motion by most of the same economic forces. So the Irish are going around the world, the Sikhs, uh, South Indian, South Asians are going around the world, East Asians are going around the world, and they're colliding at the edges of various empires, whether it's in Australia or South Africa or the Western part of the United States. And the Irish, of course, who had been battling for first um, class standing in the British Empire for hundreds of years, run into these other people, often from the British Empire, and their ideas about this land is for them and they constitute white people for whom this land is meant or threat. They see these other people as threatening that. And so these diasporas clash in these really violent ways where um, the Irish are at the head of an effort to force South Asians and East Asians out of the West, even literally into the ocean in some towns. And they have enough clout in their voting abilities in Pacific states that ev- both parties vie for that vote. And are even though it's not a national issue at this point, they're willing to pass Chinese exclusion and other laws, similar laws, in order to win the vote of Californians and other Western um, states. So you have a sort of, so what is this new world going to look like and who is going to, who's going to benefit from it? And so you have all these contested visions of what constitutes the future. And part of the point of the book is these contested visions of what constitutes what's modern. And what's modern to Phelps Dodge looks different from what's modern to, you know, Joe Homesteader or to the Lakota or to other groups who are also on that land trying to uh, make their own dreams into material realities. And maybe the most important theme in this book is the importance of borders and of lines and of demarcation in general and of some groups of people trying to draw these borders and enforce these 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 demarcation lines and other people who are uh, uh, often willingly, sometimes unwillingly crossing these lines. How did you land on this framing as being critical to understanding the West in this time period? And what are some of the ways that border creation of all types manifested itself uh, uh, in the late 19th century and start of the 20th century in the West? I had been really struck um, as I was uh, writing this and as I was doing in my own background in uh, Latinx history with the ways in which the border was so fuzzy. It was very startling to me that we didn't even keep land-based records of our immigration until 1907 and that there was already a sizable Mexican immigration at that point to the point where they were a third of the labor in track maintenance, in mining in some places, in agricultural labor was growing. And so this notion that there was some kind of natural hard border was completely not there at the time. There were people who were policing the border to prevent smuggling of Chinese people in or other kinds of smuggling in. And even in 1907, we police, we begin in the U.S. to police borders as a result of the Gentlemen's Agreement and working with Canada and Mexico to keep Japanese people out of the country not Mexicans. That was not the issue. So I thought, well, how does this happen that we create these the, these naturalized, these things we make up as natural, as hard and fast borders in the West? And, and what is that process like? And what's the investment in it? Why is it so important? And the other piece of it that I, which is why the book starts in 1898 and not the more classic 1893 closing of the frontier moment, was the ways in which the U.S. had was becoming a nation-based empire. That for the first time with the Spanish-American War, we had acquired territories that we had no intention of ever making into states, as ever being fully equal. And that meant that we had to demarcate the difference between citizens and non-citizens in a different way, between territories or colonies and those people who fully belonged to the, to the polity. And so there were, that raised the stakes, right? You had to suddenly be able to, to have a kind of a race-based nation where before, at least theoretically, you would have had a nation based on, a, on shared ideals about democracy and the republic. So 
we had this world where there was an incentive to draw lines. It was part of how we we claimed our status as a nation and as a strong and modern state. Demarcating was part of modernity. The ability to make distinctions was seen as being modern. Racism was seen as being modern. And so all these distinctions, the state's ability to count its people, to figure out who to count on, to be able to categorize people, that was an important part of demonstrating to the world that we had the capacity to be a global player in the world. And so we sent, um, one of the most amusing things to me was to see how the United States government sent investigators out west to, and they went into mining camps and other kinds of labor sites and they were really concerned when those workplaces didn't categorize their workers by race. They didn't care whether the categories were consistent. They just wanted them categorized. And so there was this incredible investment in sort of the fiction of being able to know your population. And it, the inconsistency then gave you a kind of flexibility, which became very important later when you wanted to change your policies about certain people. And in the book, you use the example of the the small town, the black exoduster town of Boley, Oklahoma, as um, uh, an example of what this looks like on the ground, how this plays out on the ground. Can you tell us a bit about Boley and what it explains about uh, all these themes that you're talking about in the West in this time period? Yeah, Boley's an amazing example. And it was one of the first things I wrote about as I was beginning the work on this book. I was just fascinated by the ways in which for African-Americans who had been basically shut out of the West in the aftermath of the Civil War, having gotten, you know, tried to go West in the 1870s, and that being foreclosed by the South, which prevented their exodus in violent ways. And then trying again in this period and all these black towns that are founded in this hope of maybe even having a black state and having autonomy and being able to control your property. And it was, you know, so exciting to be able to do that. And then I'm looking at it and I'm looking at the dynamics of how Bully gets founded. And of course, it's founded on Creek Indian land. And it's only possible because of the kinds of requirements that the federal government has imposed on Creek Indians and who can hold land and who can't hold land and who can sell their land. And so what you end up with is black settler colonialism, as as modern scholars would put it. So black people being part of this displacing. And it's not necessarily comfortable and Booker T. Washington goes to Boley and he claims to know a lot about black, uh, sorry, about Native American people from his years at Hampton. And he keeps saying, they've all gone back. There are no real Native Americans in Boley. Every time someone's going to introduce me to one, I see someone who's African American. Now, of course, that wasn't true, but it fit with a larger U.S. white imaginary that Indians were just going to disappear. And so you didn't need to do anything horrible to them in order to acquire this land and be given this opportunity. It was just natural. And they were part of the past. And white and Booker T. Washington would say black Americans were part of the future. And of course, it was more complicated in Bully than that. And it was more complicated for Creeks, who had a long history of mixing with African-Americans who had escaped slavery, of having their own enslaved African-Americans. And so there were a lot of Creeks who had some African heritage, who were fully members of the Creek nation and, and seen as tribal members with all the benefits that that brought. And so that was also going on. And there were these tensions because Creek freedmen who had land were welcoming people, African-American people escaping from the South, and they were getting larger and larger populations. And they were putting a strain to the Creek tribal members uh, on the schools, and the tribal members felt displaced. And it didn't really matter to them whether those people displacing them were Black or whether they were white, they were still being displaced and they were still threatening the Creek's ability to determine their own future on their own land. They didn't see it in racial terms. They saw it in terms of who's Creek and who's not Creek. The federal government then turns that around and in their um, unilateral decision to, uh, to um, allocate Creek land 
and to basically break up the tribe, they decide who's really Creek and who's really not Creek. And by visual evidence, they decide anyone with African heritage is not Creek, even if that person totally identifies as Creek. And then when Oklahoma becomes a state, because Native Americans too had thought maybe they could have Indian territory as a state, just one little part of this continent that had all been theirs. um, And that does not go through and instead Indiana territories merge with Oklahoma territory. You get the state of Oklahoma. And the first thing Oklahoma does is to pass a law forbidding the marriage of black people and white people. And it very carefully says white people are anybody who doesn't have African heritage. So that Native Americans can no longer marry black Americans, which had happened a lot and was one way African Americans got land. Now only white Americans can marry Native Americans. And you get this spectacle in one court case of two people, a man and a woman, both identifying as three-quarter Creek, both only speaking Creek, both seeing themselves as Creek, but disallow- their marriage is disallowed um, and is, is abrogated because one of them has some African heritage and the other one says, when asked what her heritage, that other quarter is, she says, white, I guess, and that's enough to throw it out. So these lines, these ability to demarcate is tightly connected to who has access to resources and who is seen as belonging and who's part of the future is seen as part of the future and who is part of the past. The fact that these laws are some of the first that are passed immediately after statehood, I think really kind of tells the the whole story, really makes that argument really apparent to me. So... Let's talk about politics a little bit. And radical politics in particular are another element of this this uh, this crossing of lines that is defining of this era. Why and how were uh, ideas like socialism and feminism and labor organizing generally, how are they such potent forces in the West in this era? And how did they too cross these same kind of lines that you're talking about? So one of the things I was most struck by in doing the period of the 1910s was the ways in which all these things came together, that they they were happening on the same landscape at the same time. And that was, we tended to study them as different. Oh, there's the woman suffrage thing. There's the labor movement. There's the Mexican revolution. And we tended to silo them. But to people living at the time, they were all deeply connected. And some of them even shared uh, mottos and, and, uh, and slogans. And so I was really struck by the way in which this landscape, and this was more than anything about what the future was supposed to look like, was this place full of possibilities for people. And particularly once you had a successful Mexican revolution, all those Mexican workers looked a lot more dangerous. Like suddenly a third of your track labor is maybe revolutionary. That was scary. But meanwhile, they had organized in the same places in the same ways all up and down the American West. And workers who had come west because they had a vision of a particular kind of opportunity and participation in the economic benefits of the West, and who were, you know, sometimes totally white supremacist and sometimes quite willing to organize across lines if that was going to get them the vision they had of a place that was not governed by corporations entirely, that had a much more egalitarian distribution of wealth. And a lot of the women who organized women's suffrage, not all of them, but a lot of them had come out of what was the largest women's organization at the time, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was all about Christian socialism. And so you had these left-leaning women and you had these leftist labor organizations and you had these Mexican revolutionaries and you had these farmers who had gone west and these miners who had gone west who are so frustrated that their opportunities are being foreclosed by large corporations. And so they can create a kind of common cause with a different vision of what the future of the West is going to be. And they can have victories in some places. I mean, the women's suffrage was one of the most radical movements of the age, if in nothing else, than in radically expanding who could vote. It doubled the electorate. And we tend to forget about just what that meant. Suddenly, twice as many people could vote. And nobody was sure how those women were all going to vote. And so you get new laws passed. You get women's pension laws. You get minimum wage laws. You get other kinds of laws that benefit women that are passed and that are consonant with issues around labor and labor laws. And you get the first women elected to uh, office in 
the British Empire and elected to Congress in the U.S. that come out of these radical movements and, uh, and that cross those lines. Um, and I completely fell in love with the Nonpartisan League in this period. I had never known much about them. That's my fault as a historian. But they are in the Northern Plains in both Canada and the U.S. They're the ones who are responsible for those women getting elected through their alliances. They know they need the women. The women know they need them. And they they say, we're not socialists. They borrow, They one of the, their founder found out that um, he'd been working with the socialists and he found out that people were very suspicious of the label socialist, but they totally liked the platform. So he created this nonpartisan league to make it possible to have that platform without having that label. And, uh, and it became this grassroots organization in North Dakota and some of the other upper Midwest states. There was some in Minnesota, it's most successful in North Dakota, but Montana, Minnesota, the, um, the Plains states, the Plains uh, provinces in Canada. And they had state banking and they had state granaries and they were able to take some power back from these large milling corporations. And, and when the Supreme Court, when the those large milling corporations decide to challenge them and it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And you would think they would lose because it's in an era much more conservative when it gets to the Supreme Court. And instead, the Supreme Court says, well, the people of Minnesota, or the, sorry, the people of North Dakota said they wanted to have state banking and they've spoken and it's their state so they can have state banking, which was amazing to me. That was one of my favorite parts of this section of the book was the way that you expanded the uh, the, the the kind of leftist political movements of this time period outside of their usual places, right? When we think about, or we generally, whoever we might be here, when historians often talk about or teach about this uh, part of American history, it focuses on places like Colorado or maybe in the Twin Cities, these sort of places that we think of as hotbeds for uh, labor and leftist activism. And you're talking about places like North Dakota, small towns in Oregon, Oklahoma, I really appreciated that expansion of the geography of this story a great deal in this book. It was amazing to see it in all those places. You make the case in the book that World War I is also a critical moment, a critical kind of juncture point in the history of the, 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 the West at the start of the 20th century. What impact does the war and American entry into the war have on all of these questions of borders and demarcation and line drawing? How does the U.S. government, for example, use the pretext of the war to forestall a lot of this radical activism that we have been talking about? So, you know, nationally, and this story is pretty well known, this uh a really harsh repression of radical movements. And you have a war, so you have wartime state governments. And in some states, they simply, like they let the legislature out for the duration and had an appointed group running the state. And that appointed group always included some corporate people as well as the occasional labor representative. And those corporate people were totally willing to use the wartime exigency to completely destroy radical organizations by putting people in jail, by having encouraging vigilante action, and um, that was really literally deadly. And um, but the other thing that happened that I uh, that I love about this period is that there are some really quirky moments. So the lumbermen, um, the guys who owned lumber, these huge, vast territories of, of privately owned forests, had always been battling with their workers, these radical workers who tended to be IWW types. And so now they have the war and they're still battling those workers and they have no desire to hand over more power to the state and no desire to have more, hand more power over to the workers. And so um, they arrange with their draft boards to have labor activists drafted into the military, into the army, and, and get them out of their workplace. The problem with this is the army doesn't want radicals in the army. <laughs> You're not, this is not the solution to them. Like, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> I mean, Pershing is like, oh my God, it's all gonna be, they're all Mexican revolutionaries. The IWW, they're all the same people. And he wasn't necessarily wrong about that. And they're gonna be in my army. And, and not only that, but you're creating so much unrest there that I won't even be able to take the army to Europe because they're all gonna be here putting down your strikes. So we have to do something about this. 
And so what they do is they bring in this guy who had um, managed to make things work smoothly in the Philippines, and they bring him in to figure out how to make this work in the Pacific Northwest. And he had completely expected the workers to be outrageous and exaggerating things. And instead, he found it was the other way. He said these conditions were incredibly appalling. And so they create a kind of union which has the workers and the owners, and the owners are most resistant to this, all involved. It ends up with hundreds of thousands of people in it, and they are able smoothly to make planes and to make um, construct uh, military encampments and all the things you need to do to be able to run a war. And for the first time, workers have some stability, they have some benefits, they have decent food, so they're happy, the communities see them as respectable, so that works well. It goes very smoothly, and the lumber owners have managed to avoid the nationalization that was terrifying them, because that's what happened to the railroads. Um, now, of course, it doesn't last beyond the war. But it is this moment where the um, pervasiveness of radicalism leads to these very strange alliances that you get. And then when the war is over, of course, you still have all the machinery of repression that you created for the war, all the machinery of vigilantism. And that and, and no hold on any longer because you don't need people to be unified for the war in the same way. And so there's this evisceration, and you can now deport people because you're not at war anymore. And so there's this evisceration of the radical movements in the West. And that's and at the same time, of course, the evisceration of any kind of um, cross-racial organizing. And so you get massacres of cross-racial organizing people. You get, um, you know, the, we know about the rise of the second rise of the Ku Klux Klan, which I think is really enabled by the green light given vigilantism during the war. Suddenly it's respectable to be vigilantes. And so that makes it easier. And so at the beginning of the 20s, um, you have... Uh, you know, new laws saying, you know, aliens can't own land, aliens ineligible for citizenship can't own land in Pacific Coast states and in some other states. You have all these exclusions. You have these radicals that are jailed and, and deported, and you have um, African-American organizations that are harshly put down. You have the Tulsa um, massacre that happens, um, really is the culminating event of all this. And then... Um, you have a pull back from that, but you can pull back from that partly because it's accomplished its work so well. And and when people can't any longer, although North Dakota nonpartisan league manages to survive all these challenges, but for many places when you can't any longer depend on electoral politics as the way in which to participate, then you have to look elsewhere. And this is where you get in my mind, the takeoff of the sort of speculative West. We'll look for economic democracy if we're not going to have political democracy. Well, let's talk about that speculative West, because in a whole bunch of ways, this is sort of the era when Americans are imagining the West in new ways. They're trying to create a particular image of the West. They're trying to sell that image of the West. And as you just said, they're trying to speculate on that image of the West, that idea of the West in the 1910s and 1920s. How is that the case? What's 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 going on in, in this part of the story? How is the idea of the West being created in this time period? So it's it's not um, newly created so much as, as newly marketed in mass ways. I mean, there had been dime novels about the West in the 19th century, and now you had film, and you also had new ways to invest in the West. So you had the growth of the stock market, and the people had experience for the first time with liberty bonds. So for the first time, they had gotten involved in a kind of bond market and a stock market. They used those bonds. I refer to it as a sort of entry-level drug to the stock market, and they sell the bonds and buy much more speculative stock with it. And, um, and oil has become incredibly important, and so everybody wants to take a plunge in the oil market in this period. So the, the West is still held up as this place where people can become rich, where anybody can become anything, and anybody can invest um, in the market or in land or in oil. Uh, and the film industry, which starts in like New Jersey, 
quickly moves west because it's a non they have a non-union environment because they also have a variety of landscapes that they can use and so you have this engine of um being able to purvey this image westerns were the most popular films in for a, a long not even only in this period but way well into the 20th century um well past mid 20th century and that creates this image of what people, um, what a lot of white Americans want the West to be about, uh, which is the heroic American conquest of another land and the individual American making against all odds. And so that's the kind of image you can sell, the chivalric American male rescuing, you know, white females from dangerous other people. And there are, you know, Native Americans and other people in these early Westerns, but almost entirely, they are not the people depicted as the heroes, and they're not the people depicted as having anything to do with the future of the West. Um, So when Native Americans get rich from oil, which they do in the Osage Nation, and, and among the Creek too, instead of saying, oh, look, they're being Americans, and they're participating, and they're buying the fancy cars, and look how well they've assimilated. People say, oh my goodness, they should not be participating in this wealth. They haven't evolved in the way they need to evolve to do it. They haven't learned to farm. They need to learn to farm first, and then they can do these other things. And in congressional hearings, when people say, like, nobody can make a living farming in the 1920s, the congressmen say, well, it doesn't really matter whether they make money on it or not. They just have to go through the farming stage of civilization before they can go through the spendthrift stage of civilization. And when people say, well, we don't have any control over other people who spend their money wildly and buy fast cars, it's almost as though they're saying, well, that's too bad. I wish we did. But look, we have control over Native Americans and we can do that. So um, there were all these efforts of Native Americans to get access to their wealth and efforts of the congressmen to keep them from doing it and to see them as inappropriately participating in this speculative economy. Like they were not ready to be speculators yet, according to the white Americans who were running things because they were part of the past and not part of the future. But of course, in that future, the speculative bubble that you're talking about famously bursts in the at the end of the 1920s, which brings about another era of, of great and substantial change in the West. What were some of the implications of the onset of the Great Depression and the New Deal in the American West, particularly for Western farmers and for Western workers? One of the things you see when the crash happens in the West is, first of all, a total lack of surprise on the part of a lot of the Western farmers who'd been having hard times for a long time and had been um, a little cagey about their speculation, but also the sort of roaring back to life of what had only been 10 years earlier, right? All that mobilization in the, ni- in the late 1910s that had ended with so much violence in the early 1920s, that people remembered that. Those people still had those organizing skills. Those people still knew what it was to mobilize and to try to get what they considered economic justice for themselves. And so the labor organizations roar back to life in that period. And some of them, the same people who had been involved in the 1910s, and some of them, of course, are are new recruits. And um, you get, and they, they hit the road. You know, they are a large contingent of the Bonus Army heading for Washington. They are going all over the place in the West. And, you know, millions of Americans are hitting the roads, particularly young men are hitting the roads. And they are joining once again the IWW and uh, and other uh, leftist organizations. And it's... In some places, uh, they they organize. Well, let me back up a little bit. So first, you have first they mobilize and they're all over the place. And you, um, it's it's not yet the New Deal, so there's no provision made for them. It's Hoover's White House that they uh, that they march on with the Bonus Army, and it's terrifying to have all these military soldiers quite disciplined camped out on your White House lawn waiting for good news about their bonus and then they don't hear it. And of course we know that Patton and MacArthur uh, ride them down with fixed bayonets. 
So we have all this disorder. The New Deal comes in, and the New Deal really wants to create order. The New Deal, this is chaotic. People are looting grocery stores. They're marching into town. They're um, upending you know, milk. They're for, forbidding people to... Um, to be evicted, they're preventing evictions, they're uh, forestalling, they're, you know, doing evil things to bankers. And, uh, and so in order to create a kind of calm again, the New Deal tries to create something for everyone, basically. And one of the things that they do is um, they pass labor legislation, um, they get Congress to pass labor legislation. Now, that legislation does not cover uh, agricultural workers, but agricultural workers behave as though it does cover them. And they have this moment where they have power because one of the things that happens early in the Depression, really starting in the late 20s, is forced deportation and what's called repatriation of Mexicans and their American-born children. Uh, their numbers are controversial. Somewhere between 400,000 and a million people are um, deported to Mexico in this period. Uh, and even when they say it's voluntary, usually it's voluntary through a withdrawal of resources. But sometimes people are literally rounded up and put on boxcars and sent across the border. And so you ha suddenly you don't have as much available farm labor as you had, but you still have crops. And so there's this moment before the Dust Bowl hits, before you have all those people from dusty states coming west to farm labor, where you have uh, more strength in the hand of labor than you do at other times. And there's a massive cotton worker strike. And they, they win. They succeed. Um, and they sort of force the government and they get collaborators in, in California to give them some backing to arbitrate the strike in ways, even though the law technically doesn't allow, doesn't allow for it. And you end the book in 1940, which is not quite half a century since the, 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 the start of the book. Um, you know, someone born when the book begins still conceivably has like half their life left to live by the time you, you end the book. And despite this, this very short amount of time, the West looks remarkably different on the eve of World War II than it did at the start of the Spanish-American War in 1898. So what had changed in the West during this 40-ish year span? What is so different about the West in 1940 compared to 1898? Mm, um, well, let me back up a little bit and say I should have the other massive mobilizations that happened in the 30s, the general strikes that happened um, also at the participation of both Teamsters and uh, maritime workers who were often, as it turned out, the same people with the same heritage. And part of what's different about 1940 is the fruits of what the New Deal did to the West, or did for the West, in creating huge jobs programs, these enormous dams that we're all very familiar with that brought electricity and, and um, irrigation to much of the West. Um, but the other thing is that it's very clear that all those, all those possibilities that started it and this contested notion of what's going to be a modern U.S., they're not all quite as open as they had been. The borders north and south are much firmer. The Border Patrol gets created in 1924. They are being policed in a different way than they had been. Racial formations are different than they had been and much stricter than they had been. Uh, Japanese people early in the century could claim to be white and win that case. By, the by 1940, court decisions in the 20s have firmly placed them outside the shelter of whiteness. So that's no longer a possibility. There are, um, for the first and only time in 1930, Mexican is declared to be a race and not a nationality. So even if you're a U.S. citizen, you could be a Mexican, according to the census. So 
There is firmer notions of what constitutes a white American and those people who are supposed to benefit from that. And the steady drumbeat of the West is a white man's country, that water is for white men, that irrigation is for white men, that federal programs are for white men, that just continues as a through line in this, even when the New Deal does create black farm settlements and, um, and some black work projects. It still is very much, you know, this vision of uh, what West and modernity are, and uh, and the strength of corporations in the West and the infrastructure of the West is um, is very different in 1940. At the same time, what also survives is that other legacy of the American West, which is the possibility of mass mobilization and a different vision of what the future can hold, and so you still have. Um, that very live sense of, of the ability of the West to promise a kind of participation in the future of American economy as well as democracy that um, has had its ups and downs but was there also in the, in the 1890s, 1900. So it almost sounds like what you're saying is that at the end of the 19th century, these lines that, that we've been talking about are very kind of faintly drawn on the map or on the page. And by the time you get to 1940, they're much more firmly, much more boldly drawn on that page. That's almost sort of what makes the West modern in a way. Is that a fair way of, of thinking about it? Yes, and I, I do think that that is, that the, that the West that Teddy Roosevelt, for example, imagined this West that was going to be full of white farmers and white um, workers and large corporations is, he would have been very happy, as well as having these um, wilderness areas in which there were no longer Native Americans who were just doing their own business in the a land that was managed by um, the federal government on behalf of white Americans and with clear distinctions about who belonged and who didn't belong. And yeah, and, and also the, the creation of those things as natural, seeing those borders, whether they're demarcating, we haven't talked about sexuality, but whether they're demarcating what's a proper woman and man or what's a proper Mexican or US person, those borders are now created as natural. Of course, it would just always be that way. Right. And and that's, you know, one of my other big takeaways. I mean, this is a takeaway from history in general, right? That that which seems natural, that which which seems immutable, but that has actually been created, then can be uncreated, right? So as much as as these lines are very boldly drawn on the map, that doesn't mean that they're impossible to 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 change or to erase entirely. Absolutely. And that's And I agree with you that that's part of what we learn by recognizing that they're not natural. It becomes possible to imagine a different kind of future and a different kind of world. So one question I like to ask toward the end of my interviews, um, which often gets gets some some frustrated noises from, from my guests, because it's not an easy question, is thinking about someone reading this book uh, and, and thinking back on it from a remove of a year or five years or so, what would you hope might be one takeaway that that reader would remember coming away from this book understanding? Yeah, that is a great question. <laughs> I, I called the book Making a Modern West even though it sounds like such a dull textbooky title, because my point really was the contested notions of modernity, that people imagined different kinds of modernity, different kinds of modern West, and that they imagined those so robustly and worked on them so robustly that they created them as material realities, that they were possibilities, even when they were temporarily perhaps foreclosed that you could have these alternative Wests come through and that all these different people had a kind of agency in making that future and that those possibilities are still there, Um, that there are all sorts of players that people didn't realize, that there are, are ways in which you cannot isolate U.S. history from the history beyond its borders, that Mexico played a much larger place in this history and this period and this creation of a modern U.S. West than we have given it credit for, and that many of the dynamics that we now have have their roots in this era in, in decisions that, don't, that should not be seen as natural. 
and indeed, this is an amazingly transnational book in all kinds of ways. It's really uh, a model of how to do that kind of transnational history while keeping the focus on the United States, but, you know, understanding that the U.S. does not exist in a vacuum at all. Yeah, that was important to me. One of the um, in one of the early readers' reports, somebody was saying, "Why are we still talking about the Mexican Revolution?" <laughs> but, hey, <laughs> but, but you make the point very, very, very well that you can't talk about the U.S. West in the 1910s without really focusing on the Mexican Revolution because people in the U.S. at the time are focusing on the on the Mexican Revolution. Yeah, I think the ways in which the Mexican Revolution has been marginalized and created as virtually invisible in U.S. history is pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, way yeah. before the Russian Revolution, we had this thing that freaked people out on our border yeah it's it's yeah it's it's almost both of those happening in quick succession that is is you know kind of heightening a lot of americans fears of what what might be going on next in the united states and then my last question i always like to get a preview from my authors of what they're working on next i know that when you've just completed a something like 500 page book and it has only come out in the last couple months that that might be sort of a silly question but if i know historians i know that we often have a couple uh plates spinning at once so if there's anything that you've been working on uh in the the last couple months or any projects that you're excited to get to next um what might those be um, thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on two things at the moment. One is, it turns out there's going to be a new edition of my first book, of No Separate Refuge, and so I'm trying to write a new preface for that and wrap my arms around the daunting and amazing amount of literature that's come out in the last 35 years since that book first appeared. Uh, so that's one thing I'm doing. And then I have a project I've been wanting to do since really since that book came out on American ambivalence about making profits. This is something totally naturalized in the U.S. Like we all think profits are great and we're all governed by the desire to maximize profits. But it turns out there was a longstanding ambivalence about making profits. And from you know just market laws in the colonial period to um, more recent things. And I, I really think... It's, it's partly about where virtue is supposed to rely in the U.S., and it seems to always be outside the market, whether it's the 19th century separate spheres where women are supposed to stay at home, whether it's the, you know, the virtuous farmer who's not supposed to have workers but does his own work on the land, the yeoman guy, or whether it's NGOs now. Um, so that I decided my way into this would be by looking at excess profits laws. Um, and excess profits taxes. I thought, what is an invalidly capitalist country doing thinking anything is an excessive profit? And so I've been starting to look at those moments when that comes up and the shift between the language of excess profit and windfall tax, uh, which is really interesting to me. So that's sort of where I'm going next. That sounds amazing. That, that sounds like a, a, a fascinating project, but a difficult project to get one's, one's arms around. That's another thing where I'm not sure where I'd even begin with something like that. So I look forward to reading that, and I wish you luck. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thanks for your questions. Yes, of course. Dr. Sarah Deutsch is a professor of history at Duke University and is the author of Making a Modern U.S. West, the Contested Terrain of a Region and Its Borders, 1898 to 1940, which came out as part of the History of the American West series from the University of Nebraska Press earlier this year in 2022. Uh, Thanks again for joining me today, Sally. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you.